We've all seen the incredible horse and rider combinations as the backbone of our sport. But what about everything else that makes the equestrian world tick? From the everyday grind to the world-class professional, join the Equestrian Podcast as we talk about every equestrian discipline in a way that hasn't been done before. Now here's your host, rider, trainer, and influencer behind my equestrian style, Bethany Lee. Hello, hello. Welcome to the Equestrian Podcast. I'm your host, Bethany Lee, and this is episode 41. I am so excited to welcome our next guest because I believe he embodies all the aspects that someone should have in an equestrian business. He literally started buying and selling horses at the age of 12, which he does not recommend, and he has continued to make tons of connections in Europe and in the United States, sharing time between Wellington, Florida, and California. He is constantly on the go, but whether he is on the East Coast or West Coast, he is working to promote both horses and upcoming professional riders. All right, so let's hear from him. Here's our guest today, Neil Jones. Thank you so much for taking a minute to come on the podcast. Uh, would love to kind of talk to you a little bit about how you got started in this world and and what you're doing today. So would love to kind of hear your story um, about how you got into equestrian sport. Be more than welcome to help you with that. Awesome. So you started riding. You were you were in England, correct? Correct. Um, my mother used to rode as a, for a hobby. Uh, so I started riding when I was probably like five years old, something like this. The usual channels, you know, I used to go to the ride, local riding school and then eventually we bought a, our first pony. And from there on, uh, both myself and my brother rode. Awesome. Very cool. So you were riding um, from a young age and then you made a move to Belgium, correct? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of uh, there's sort of a lot of water under the bridge. I mean, I rode and uh, basically while I was in England, I rode till I was 12, 15. Okay. I did did some steeplechase, and then I worked for Michael Whitaker, who you know most people know is one of the top show jumpers in the world. Yeah. And at some at some stage in my career, I said to him, you know, I think I can make any money out of riding horses as a living. And he was very honest with me and was probably the best advice I've probably had in many many years. He said, yeah, I think you ride well, but I don't think you can ever make money at it. So. I decided then to try to sell horses, and I was already selling horses from a young age, even when I was in England. So I actually then sold a horse to uh, Ludo Philippart, who was at that time a you know top top twenty rider in the world, from England to Belgium. And then when I delivered the horse, he offered me a job working together with him. That was in 1991. Wow, awesome! So you were buying and selling horses. I left school when I was 13, and I think okay. I sold my first horse when I was 12. Something. Like that. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, how did how did that even come to be? Not to be recommended because I think then the kids hear that, then they all think they can go and do the same yeah, right? sort of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Yeah. Um, so, you've been doing this for a while, and then what happened once you uh, started working in Belgium? So when I worked in Belgium in 1991, Ludo, Ludo and I were building a, a new business together and we started, you know, basically he, he was riding at the top level. So he didn't have time to take care of the customers, source the horses, uh, do the usual things that, you know, people do that sell horses, but he wanted to be involved in the horse business. So we built the new stable, which was in uh, Mewen Grootroder in, in Belgium. And at that time in 91, <coughs> I only spoke English, but in a very short time, I learned to speak Flemish. Okay. And... So basically, with my connections in England, I started doing business with England straight away, selling horses from Belgium to, to England and England to Belgium. 
and then gradually moved on to all the other markets, you know, in Europe and then uh, Switzerland and, and then eventually to America. And by this time, you know, Luda was continued to win. It was continued to be successful. And, and, you know, having somebody like that riding the horses up front is a really good shop window. And it also gets a lot of connections when you go to the shows on the weekend. He met a lot of people who needed horses. He passed them on to me and I was at home and we would uh, buy and sell horses. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. So how long did that, uh, uh, did that partnership last? We were in business together, Luda and I, till I think 2001. So wow. quite, a long, quite a long time. And we, yeah. we still do business together. We still have horses together. But as everybody knows, Luda has four kids now. He's two oldest ones are twins. They're riding at the top level. You know, yeah. the, writing, the writing was on the wall that they were always going to come into the business, which they have sure. done now. I'd say that. I'm still doing business with his sons. We did some deals recently, you know, buying and selling horses. They're both sponsored by uh, H&M. So uh, he rides on the team of a good friend of mine, Neil Muffet. He rides on London Knights. So we still had a lot of business connections together, Ludo and I. Amazing. Very cool. So what was the transition like from when you were living in Belgium to when you made the, the plunge to live in the United States full time? So, so basically, um, you know, go back a few years when I left Ludo, then I went out on my own and I had uh, several different riders that rode for me over the years. One of them being uh, Jaime Guerra from Mexico, who passed recently. He mm. was a top jockey. And then I had several different riders that Cal Cox, who was successful on his own right now. So I've produced a lot of top riders. I mm -hmm. also had, I had Lorenzo De Luca when he came to me. Nobody really knew, you know, of Lorenzo. He was like a, an up and coming kid. But, mm -hmm. you know, in the four or five five years he was together with me, he became one of the top riders in the world. Totally. And so one of the years that we went from Belgium to uh, America, we went to Florida to compete with Lorenzo. We took several horses and he was very successful. And when I came back, this was 2014, 13 or 14, I'm not sure. You know, I decided that, you know, I'd been in Belgium long enough and I had a really big client base in California. And mm -hmm. I wanted to, you know, I wanted to go to America and maybe spend a bit more time. So, you know, we were, initially we did the three months of the circuit. And after that, sure. I bought a house there. And eventually I moved to Wellington, Florida. And, you know, I think just for several reasons in my uh, my time in life, I wanted to enjoy the good weather i've been on the circuit in europe so long and i think mm -hmm. I have so many i have i have all the connections in europe so i like to go backwards and forwards right i i can go and see horses anytime i take a lot of my american clients with me to try horses we can do shows still in europe so mm -hmm. i have the best of both worlds you know we do some of the shows in california in the summer and we do florida in the winter and lorenzo although i didn't want to let him go because a is a top rider and b is a good friend of mine mm -hmm. uh, we got him a job with steph x and from there he's you know, he's obviously doing very well today and he's still at the top of his sport. So it yeah. worked out for everybody. Awesome. So when you are looking for sale horses, has that shifted or changed as far as your process goes from when you were in uh, Europe to when you're in America? Well, obviously now I know the divisions better because I mean, you know, right. people used to people used to come to Europe and they used to say, "I'm looking for a hunter or an amateur owner." Or so, you know, we didn't really know what we wanted, and you know, the European thing is just to show everybody whatever they've got because sure. we don't we don't really know what a high junior was at those. Right. You, know, you know, we we know what our junior horses look like, but there's different yeah. divisions. So yes, it, it, you know, it enabled me being here to know what I'm looking for. But I think the the biggest uh, the biggest thing with my my sales business is that I do know what the people are looking for and I know where to find it because I have all the contacts and I like the fact that uh, I'm in the states because 
we have a base of horses here. We have a stock. If people want to try them, they can try them in the ring. They can use their own vets here. They don't have to ship them. They're already mm-hmm. here. We're taking a lot of those major elements out of it. So, um, you know, you need time to go and look at horses in Europe. And it's like anything else, you know, you need to build up a relationship like I did from 1991 to 2001 with all those people because, you know, if you're buying a horse, it's an expensive item. And if you, you, you don't know the people, you don't trust the people, it's always uh, obviously a tricky, tricky situation. Yeah, definitely. I know being a trainer myself, it's exciting and fun to go to Europe and find a horse, but it's also, I mean, there's a huge risk involved too. Like you don't know what it's going to be like after the travel, after the quarantine, after um, any type of gelding or anything like that. So there's a, there's a big risk. So I think your setup where you can be able to show them, people can see that their proven winners are successful. Um, I think that takes a big um, factor into going with you versus um, going to Europe and kind of going blind yeah and i mean we do both obviously we can you know i don't mind to go i've done several trips with people from here and you know advise them yeah. and but which is good but this the, the 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 good part is for us if they buy a horse and you know god forbid something goes wrong or it doesn't work out we have mm-hmm. another horse here here in the states because we have a stock of already 20 25 most of the time and that's yeah. the problem when you buy a horse in europe and you get it here it doesn't work out you're going to have to go back to europe to that guy where you bought the horse initially right does he have more horses? Is he actually willing to do an exchange? Right. X, Y, Z. So we're trying to build up a client base, but we're trying to keep the same client. Hopefully that's what we're doing and we're doing it quite well. Mm-hmm. Definitely. When you are, you were saying 20, 25 horses, is that kind of your sweet spot as far as how many horses you keep at any given time? Yeah, I mean, my staff would tell you they'd look, love to have much more, but I mean, my, <laughs> yeah, my, my sweet spot is between like 15 and 20, but I mean, actually... You know, it varies all the time because we have horses coming back off lease and, you know, but I mean, and then we have horses that, you know, I'm lucky to have a a rider like Cassio Rivetti who Mm -hmm. uh, has some, some clients that he trains. So basically we've started in the training side of this recently and we already have four or five really nice clients and we have uh, two new staff, also professional riders that can train. I'm going to bring another one on board in another couple of months. So we'll probably have four riders in total to train people and hopefully we'll uh, you know we'll expand that side of the business yeah that's so cool um yeah. another thing that i find super unique with your business is you are um constantly marketing horses but you are equally marketing your riders too so what kind of made you decide to go that route um kind of with this business model well I mean, I've always done that. I mean, for instance, CWD, I've had as a sponsor since the late 90s, you know. So, I mean, okay. I, if I have if I have a good sponsor like that, I try to keep them and try to promote them. And I do that for my riders, but I also do it for the people that, you know, many, many, many riders and many people get a sponsorship, but they actually don't help the people or don't do anything with it. And I think that, you know, right. if somebody's willing willing to give you products or whatever, or, you, you know, you're an ambassador from that product, you need to try to promote it a little bit. And I think that to have the riders more independent because, you know, riding is very, it's a, it's a very, uh, it's a very delicate sport in the end because, you know, one day you're winning, the next day you could be on your backside in the ring and you right. can also, you can also be out of action. So you can't earn money. And this is the thing that, that I'm trying to, you know, make the riders realize that if they can teach, they can still teach. So if something happens or something goes wrong, they still mm-hmm. have the teaching, teaching to fall back on. And, you know, to promote the sports, we try to get young people that are a little, you know, like uh, hopefully people look up to those riders that we use and, and they want to use the same products. 
Mm-hmm. Definitely. What is the involvement like on your end for assisting these riders? Are they coming in with other trainers? Are you taking on that role? What is that kind of relationship look like usually the the people who want to train come to me first and then mm-hmm. you know i actually i mean i'm not a trainer but i do help casio um on the floor and on my other riders but basically basically the people are coming to us and then i suggest that they come and talk to casio or talk to one of our other people and we go mm-hmm. from there you know okay very cool so how does the scheduling work with are, are you um mostly in you said Florida in the winter, California in the summer. Yeah. Are you kind of constantly going back and forth? Backwards and forth. Yeah, I literally, yeah. Got off a plane. <laughs> I, literally got, I literally got off a plane yesterday. We seem to be going, Cassio and I saw myself go up and down. So we split the barn into two. And we don't have that many horses in Florida. We have four there right now. Okay. Um, Cassio was there a few weeks ago. He was uh, second in the World Cup. And he's, awesome. actually quali- he's actually qualified for the World Cup final, which was our goal basically for, for the first year, which now Cassio has been with me a year. Um, he's going to campaign those horses there a little bit because just for his qualifications for the Olympics mm-hmm. and the other things, he needs to be in those shows. Uh, we have right now, I think, 27 horses in thermal. Um, mm-hmm. this, this includes some of the clients' horses and he does both. So, you know, it's very, it's, it's a lot of traveling, but it's actually nice to go to two different shows, keep moving around. Thermal is the new show in the desert horse park. It's, mm-hmm. uh, it's it's improving all the time and we want to be part of that i have a lot of customers down here and i don't want to abandon that you know definitely that's awesome do you also do a lot with hunters and horses? we obviously we do focus on that because i don't have somebody that rides hunters but i mean the new guy i'm getting to come and train and do with us he can do both we do have hunters i have a really nice hunter right now in florida it's not you know it's not our main priority but we do Mm -hmm. we do do it yeah very yeah. cool. Awesome. What are some aspects or uh, traits that you look for when you are picking out a horse that's not necessarily for a specific client, but one that you want um, to kind of showcase in general? Well, basically, I like to look at the model of the horse because, first of all, I mean, you know, the shape of the horse, the shape mm-hmm. of the feet, you know, if the horse has good feet. I don't like horses in general with like a long past and joint because the ground seems to damage them in the long run. Um, right. I like, you know, the, I like a good character of horses. You know, the, the character of the horse is important. You know, we we need to be able to deal with it and, you know, to work with a horse that actually mm-hmm. doesn't mind letting you work as a horse that's super talented but has got a bad attitude. That's, right. that's something we don't need or I don't need in my setup anyway, if it's uh, at all possible. But, I mean, there's many aspects. You know, the canter has to be good. I really like balance. Uh, you know, they have to have an upright you know, position when they're cantering. I don't like when their heads are underneath themselves. Uh, you know, I mean, just, you know, it, it's one of those things a lot of people ask, but, you know, when I go to try mm-hmm. horses, like, I, I'm very quick to decide if I like or I don't like. Yep. I'm, I'm sure I've made mistakes like other people, but um, it's it's basically, I think, you know, if a horse will work with you, you know, you can work with them. The, the time you try the horse, usually they're never going to go better than when you try them. Sure. So, you know, that's one thing you need to be careful of in, in buying horses that make sure that, you know, that that horse has a decent record and that when you try the horse, it's probably never going to go better than the day you try it. You may be able to improve it if it's a young horse, but if it's a, you know, a Grand Prix jumper, for instance, I, I think you're delusional if you think you're going to make them better. If, it, if you mm-hmm. can, it's great. But if you think that, usually it bites you in the backside. Yeah. Can you think of some horses that you've had in your program that have had some, you know, pretty remarkable careers since you've sold them? 
there's quite a few, but I mean, you know, we're going back years and years. But I mean, we've had so many horses that have been successful, and recently I sold some horses to uh, to Neil Moffat that Ben Mayer has mm-hmm. ridden and uh, Concona and horses like that. So his yeah. daughter's had a few. But I mean, there's so many to mention, and I I, I always say it's a funny thing because sometimes the people that do my Instagram sometimes they say, oh, we should do a shout out to that horse. It won something. The problem is that when you, <laughs> when, when you do that, in my opinion. I always get a telephone call or a text from somebody saying, well, what about my horse? It won that last week. Uh-huh, because right. you, fi- you forget how many you've sold and then you, you know, you're going to upset somebody. So I try not to, uh, try not to sort of mention too many different ones, but when in the times I was with Ludo and so we had so many good horses at the top level, you know, King Darko and horses mm-hmm. like that and horses that have been to the Olympics and, wow. you know, so yeah, we've had a lot. And I think it doesn't matter what level they are. I'm just happy when the clients are happy. Totally. Yep. Absolutely. So what would you say is an area of the industry that you're particularly passionate about that you feel like the rest of the industry either doesn't know a lot about or doesn't talk enough about? I think that, uh, for instance, sometimes I get a little bit uh, upset with the people in California when they're talking about, you know, like, oh, we need to go to Wellington or we need to go to Europe. I mean, you have a, you have some really nice shows here and you have a really nice uh-huh basis to produce young horses young grand prix horses you have some really nice shows and the feeling is sometimes that the grass is always green on the other side and you know i think i know that better than anybody because i've been of course if you want to be in the sport at the top level you need to be in europe because of the shows like arkin and these type of places and you need to go to you need to go to spruce meadows but i think that um it's very easy for these children not to get involved in the stable and i really like that my riders, they can tack their own horses up. They can, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I had maybe Spencer work for me. You know, she started out as a groom. And from being a groom, she came to ride with me. And she was mm-hmm. always a rider before. But she rode as a as a junior. But, you know, her basis was she was always in the stable. She was always tacking up horses. She was always right. grooming. And then she went, went and won Grand Prix. And I think one of the things I like that the children nowadays, they need to learn also the basis of that, not just pull a horse out of a stable, get on a mountain block and go, you know. I think they need to know mm-hmm. the, more about the horse. And I think that my people, even the people we're training, we're trying to do that with as well. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think that that's definitely something that some people may be, may be missing. And it, it really kind of needs to be a, a full package deal where you can, um, if to be you know a true horseman, to really yeah. understand all aspects of the sport. Yeah, and you know, I mean, and, and obviously these kids nowadays, they've got so many, you know, you know, work with school and, and, and the rest sure. of it. But uh, if you see in Europe, for instance, you know, the ones that are successful, they, they do have, a, you know, a good family background of horses usually, but they also mm-hmm. don't mind to get stuck in and, you know, help with the horses and all the rest of it. And I think that, you know, really to know your horse, you really need to do that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, really well said. Well, Neil, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Equestrian podcast today and I wish you all the best. Thank you. You have a good day. All right. That is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in. If you liked what you heard, please take a minute and write a review on iTunes. I would so appreciate it. It helps people like you find the podcast and it helps me get some killer guests. Thank you so much. And I will talk to you next week.